is a, is a new show on HBO uh, by this girl named Lena Dunham, who is the writer, the director, the producer, and uh, the lead actress. And so uh, I couldn't say it any better, and it kind of gets us started um, on the right foot. So I'm going to go ahead and press play. This is the first scene of the first episode of the first season. So this is how the entire framework of the show is started. It's, she's at dinner with her parents. Slowly, 
they become totally useless. They seem really high functioning and just ruins them. Okay, my friend Sophie, her parents don't support her. Last summer, she had two abortions. Right in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that I am so close to the life that I want, the life that you want for me, that I can just end that right now. No more money. <laughs> <laughs> Starting morning. Starting now. We can talk about it tomorrow. I don't want to see you tomorrow. What? Well, we fly out Tuesday. I have work, and then I have a dinner thing, and then I am busy. Trying to become who I am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pretty indicative. Um. So. You know, you, I could have played like a number of movie trailers that have been released in the last five years. Um, and then even ones that are coming out, like This is 40, which is the sequel to um, Knocked Up, like the same characters, but they're dealing with the fact that they're 40 and they're still acting like they're uh, my age. And um, there's the five-year engagement. There's this movie Greenberg that had uh, Ben Stiller and... Anyways, there's, there's all these movies that are showing this, uh, this new brand of adulthood that looks really nothing like adulthood at all. And um, parents are frustrated with their kids that are still living in the basement, or, um, or, or it's just that we're adults, but we feel like we're kids, and we're frustrated with ourselves because we thought this was going to be a lot easier, and instead we feel completely paralyzed by what seems like such a huge, daunting future. So I'm going to talk about that, but I'm also going to talk about sort of the relationship of that particular status to Facebook, social media, the way we interact with each other. Um, but first of all, um, it's, it's been called emerging adulthood. David Brooks called it the, um, the odyssey stage. It's kind of the, the newest stage in human development. Um, in between adolescence and adulthood, this sort of odyssey phase where we actually are traveling around the world and like buying expensive <laughs> dinners that we can't afford, that our parents pay for, and having these experiences which are supposed to grow us into the adults that we are becoming. Um, and then there's this woman, Sally Coslow, and I've been reading her book quite a bit lately, called Slouching Toward Adulthood. Observations from the not-so-empty nest. So she's a parent who has uh, hosted her children again after college for a couple of years and, and then has, has eventually booted them out. So she calls this um, adultessence. Um, and, and she defines it basically in the first three pages by what it's not. And uh, she kind of uses herself and her own sort of development as an adult uh, to talk about what her kids are not doing. So I'm going to read that. <clears throat> In the eyes of most real grown-ups, a random five or ten-year slice of adulthood does not include going to school, taking a break, going to school again, possibly again and again, starting a job, starting another job, moving in with mom and dad, traveling here and traveling there, taking out loans, borrowing from parents, and imbibing their grandparents' cocktails while accumulating credit card debt 
and purchasing cunning yet quickly replaced electronics. Adults tend not to post their romantic status online, pulling back the curtains on their private life and publicizing intimate secrets. They don't fall in and out of love so many times they need Excel to track their relationships before they start to serious, seriously cohabitate, postponing marriage, kids, and getting fully established at jobs, much less careers. Adults may have sucked up the fizzy bestseller Eat, Pray, Love, but they don't see Elizabeth Gilbert, its author, as their North Star as they wing off for extended stays in Italy, India, Indonesia, these young adventurers may also be unaware that Gilbert followed Eat, Pray, Love with Committed, where the author defends matrimony in pointless detail. Adults feel that usually by the mid-30s, they need to stop. And here, I use the technical term, farting around. <laughs> so, that's one way of looking at it. And then, um, I don't know, you, you have seen this written about everywhere, so... Um, the New York Times did a magazine cover piece, uh, I guess in 2010, what is it, about 20-somethings, and uh, they interviewed some people, and I mean, it sounds like me, but it's somewhat terrifying, writes a 25-year-old named Jennifer, I'm not Jennifer, but there's someone later, to think about all the things I'm supposed to be doing in order to get somewhere successful. Follow your passions, live your dreams, take risks, network with the right people, find mentors, be financially responsible, volunteer, work, think about or go to grad school, fall in love and maintain personal well-being, mental health, and nutrition. When is there time to just be and enjoy? As a 24-year-old from Virginia, who's probably in this room, there is pressure to make decisions that will form the foundation for the rest of your life in your 20s. It's almost as if having a range of limited options would be easier. Um, so for a, lot of, for a lot of folks in their 20s, it's also seen as this last opportunity. Like, I've got to get all this stuff out right now because sooner or later my life is going to be, like, unstoppably boring. You know, I'm going to have to settle into something and stay there. So for the time being, like, I've got to make it count right now. Um, and for whatever, whatever you want to say about that, it's, it's obvious that this is, this is different from the way it used to be. Um, for, this is from the same New York Times piece. The 20s are a black box, and there's a lot of churning in there. One-third of people in their 20s move to a new residence every year. 40% move back home with their parents at least once. They go through an average of seven jobs in their 20s, more job changes than any other stretch. Two-thirds spend at least some time living with a romantic partner without being married. And marriage occurs later than ever. The median age at first marriage in the early 70s, when the baby boomers were young, was 21 for women, 23 for men. By 2009, it had climbed to 26 for women, 28 for men. Five years and a little more than a generation. We're in the thick of what one sociologist calls the changing timetable for adulthood. Sociologists traditionally define the transition to adulthood as marked by five milestones. School, completing it, leaving home, becoming financially independent, marrying, having a baby. 
So those are the five milestones. In 1960, 77% of women and 65% of men had done this by 30. Um, and then with 30-year-olds in 2000, fewer than half of the women had, and one-third of the men had done so. Um, here's a couple more weird uh, statistics. This is from Sally Coslow. Um, in the graduating class of 2011, it was estimated that 85% of graduates moved back home, according to a poll conducted by the consulting firm 20-something Incorporated. <laughs> according to census estimates, by 2010, some 5.5 million people aged 25 to 35 were living at home, an increase of more than 25%, 25% since the recession. More than 40% of these 5.5 million people earned less than $11,000 a year, which put them on the cusp of poverty. And even worse, a 2010 New York Times poll uh, showed that 46% of Americans think that the younger generation, our generation, will be worse off than their parents. Um, and so um, there seems to be this concern um, psychologically with like the fear of settling down, with the fear of uh, choosing a path, staying with it, um, and, and not moving anymore. And uh, this, is, this is a quote from that same New York Times article, the traditional cycle seems to have gone off course. Uh, we remain untethered to romantic partners or to permanent homes. We avoid commitments. We compete ferociously for unpaid internships or temporary and often grueling Teach for America jobs, forestalling the beginning of adult life. Um, so there's that. And then there's this, it's impossible to talk about this generation without also, and commitment, and, and not also talk about the ways we uh, communicate with one another and connect um, through social media. The lingua franca of which is Facebook, and um, there are some pretty insane um, statistics about Facebook as well. So uh, became, Facebook became uh, the first website to receive one trillion page views in a month. Uh, to compare, Mockingbird gets, I don't know if I should even tell you this, but it gets 40,000 a month probably. Um, so, so one trillion is just sort of, I mean, it's just insane. Uh, 750 million photos are uploaded each weekend. <laughs> and this is, this is the killer. Uh, one, and this is on your sheet, one of every 13 people on earth are users that log on every day. Among the emerging adults, nearly half check Facebook minutes after waking up. Um or check Facebook minutes after waking up, and then there's 28% that do so before even getting out of bed. So in the entire world, between this age group of 18 to 35, over a quarter of all the people in the world in that age group wake up, check Facebook, and then get out of bed. Which is... I'm 57, and I do before I get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to my iPad, right by my Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Yeah. We'll pray for you. Yeah, we'll pray for you, right? <laughs> um, uh, 
Okay, so, and that's, don't make a correlation here, but besides this with our age group and the insane statistics from Facebook and, like, uh, the slow maturation of, of my generation, uh, there is also this, like, marked loneliness that, um, that is also reported. Um, I guess earlier this year, this was released in the Atlantic. Um, I don't know if you can see the image, but it's a guy holding a girl, and they're naked, and they're looking at, uh, like, this blue glow from a digital screen. He's, like, hugging her and then looking at his Facebook updates or whatever. Uh, is Facebook making us lonely from the Atlantic? And from that, um, it, it basically talks about how in this, in this day and age, we are insanely lonely. Um, the decrease in confidence, that is, in quality social connections, has been dramatic over the past 25 years. Uh, in one survey, the mean size of networks of personal confidants increased or decreased from three people in 1985 to two in 2004. Similarly, in 1985, only 10% of Americans said they had no one with whom to discuss important matters. And 15% said they had only one such good friend. By 2004, 25% had nobody to talk to. And 20% had only one confidant. And then this one, this one's pretty nuts. Uh, in the late 40s, the late 1940s, the U.S. was home to 2,500 clinical psychologists, 30,000 social workers, and fewer than 500 marriage and family therapists. As of 2010, the country had 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical social workers, 400,000 non-clinical social workers, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 105,000 mental health counselors, 220,000 substance abuse counselors, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, and 30,000 life coaches. So um, after listing off that number, uh, the writer says the majority of patients in therapy do not warrant a psychiatric diagnosis. She says we've outsourced the work of everyday caring. The idea being that if if you if you had a confidant, if you had some or a group of people that you could come to and talk to, um, you you wouldn't necessarily need to go see a professional. So everyday caring has been has been outsourced in some way, um, prohibiting people from um, having relationships. So pretty bleak and. I want to be clear that this is not an anti-Facebook talk or um, go out and get a job talk. I mean, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, Tommy Hill. Uh, but I'm a Facebook user. I'm an Instagram user. Uh, and I did Teach for America for two years. And I, the reason this matters to me is because I've, I see it in myself, this compulsion to sort of, um, in the same way that Sidman was talking about, project a self that is it's not, my, not my real self. Um, and looking for some way for that to be um, a way out from everyday suffering. So anyway, 
I hope that this instead is, is a diagnostic talk, uh, one that looks in, into the why of, uh, of this, these statistics and uh, the way that 20-somethings feel or emerging adults feel today. And um, I don't know. So, so Sitman quoted uh, Love in the Ruins, which is where this title comes from. And I mean, it's just amazing. You go to these conferences and you haven't heard other people's talks, but in, in this weird way, they all kind of like come together. And uh, Despite the fact that I didn't know what he was going to be talking about, it's like the perfect, um, perfect connector. But anyways, he, uh, Walker Percy in The Love in the Ruins, has this line where he says something about, um, he's, he's lying in bed in the hospital sick, and he says something to the effect of, uh, as soon as I heard my diagnosis, I, I began to feel better. And it's like he knew something was wrong, and he couldn't pinpoint what it was, and as soon as a doctor uh, came in and said, like, this is, this is what you have, immediately it was like, okay, it's been named, and, and I feel feel better. And so hopefully in talking about this, um, it's not so much like go out and get rid of your Facebook profile, but more like, okay, what, what, what's the real issue here? Um, and so in thinking about what's really there, um, I want to talk about social media's influence on uh, two things, identity, how we see ourselves, and, um, and how we uh, vision ourselves to other people, and, and relationships, how, how we relate to one another um, in the midst of those identities. So um, one of the things that I think, and this might be more autobiographical than, uh, than it is general, but <clears throat> I think it might be pretty general. I feel like our generation has, has grown up in uh, a very affirmation-heavy and like gold star, you can do it sort of mentality and that we've received from our parents uh, to the point that um, from, from the very outset, the, the language, the, op- the opportunity language has, has become ingrained in our, in our uh, psyche. And maybe that's not just our generation, maybe that's just human, but I do know that it's true that um, in elementary school, at home, um, the parenting style was to to tell your child that they are a distinct and special uh, human being that's going to do great things, if you just put your mind to it. Um, so this, this pointing out to significance. And, um, and that happens also in school in the way that children are affirmed uh, through grades and um, in, in 1966, 19% of college students earned an A or an A minus in high school. 19%. In 2009, 48% did. So almost half of the students in high school when I was in high school, or I guess a little bit later, got an A or an A minus. Um, between 1950 and 2000, uh, the GPA average like throughout the nation for high school is, has gone up one whole point on a four-point scale, uh, we, we've gone up an entire point. So everybody's just getting a lot better, I guess. But, um, so, and Sally Coslow is like an angry mom, and she's kind of got this, like, um, tiger mother streak in her. Like, she thinks we should really just, like, be, you know, hard-nosed with our kids and, 
Um, and if we're hard-nosed with them and tell them to get out of the house, they'll still love you and respect you, um, and they'll just get on with their life. Um, and I don't think that's true, but I think she is good at sort of diagnosing the problem. And so she says this uh, about us. The destiny of each child, parents have grown to believe, is to realize and maximize their own brand of distinction. Oprah may have started preaching to her viewer the live your best life in the 80s, but perhaps she got the inspiration from boomer parents who started being vainglorious about their children as soon as they had them. Um, and so one of the things that that does, if you grow up believing that uh, you are made for distinction, like you are made to distinguish yourself from the other stars in your classroom, uh, is that you also realize that there are a lot of choices to be made out there and opportunities to make yourself distinguished from everyone else. And so um, what happens is that um, you become not just overburdened by the number of choices, but you start to believe that there is within those choices a right choice. And, um, and there is a choice that, that is... That in, in a theological sense, like God has uh, divined for you the child, uh, and that until you find it, you're going to be unhappy, but once you achieve it, you will be happy. Um, and the other thing is, with you know the rising GPAs and the stickers and the great jobs, um, the, the affirmation focus, um, adolescents are... I think more consumed than in, than in years past with those choices being validated. So it's not so much about freedom, but so much as like in my freedom, I've made the choice that everyone around me can validate and say, great job. Um, so first, um, I want to talk about this sort of pressure to prove, to prove your distinction. Um, and with um, with like the American secular culture, I mean, this is this notion of distinction is very American. Uh, one one Atlantic article said today the one common feature in American secular culture is its celebration of the self that breaks away from the constrictions of the family and the state and in great ex expressions from all limits entirely. Uh, the great American poem is Whitman's Song of Myself. The great American essay is Emerson's Self-Reliance. The great American novel is Melville's Moby Dick, the tale of a man on a quest so lonely that it is incomprehensible to those around him. American culture, high and low, is about self-expression and personal authenticity. And in your, in your life, when, when you can... Uh, when you're a twenty-something and you have almost every opportunity at your fingertips, like you can, um, you can distinguish yourself in almost any way, you know. But after college, there's so many fellowships you can do. There's so many um, ways to distinguish yourself amongst those around you. And, and I mean, obviously, Facebook is is a, is a tremendous avenue to make that known. But what happens is. Um, 
more than ever through social media, through our Instagram photos um, or our Facebook profiles and our updates. Uh, we have this potential in the pressure to sort of distinguish ourselves to self-curate, to, to create a self that is so different from, from the self that uh, you talk to on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, how many people do you know who you look at their updates on Facebook uh, or, uh, you know, their, their Twitter feed, and the person that is coming through um, on that Facebook profile or that Twitter feed is so different from the person that you get lunch with or, uh, or spend time with, like, face-to-face. -face. I mean, I know that in my family that there's, that that happens, um, so there is the potential and there's the capability on Facebook to create someone that is distinct, that matters, uh, that makes like choices and does really interesting things and, um, and that that is coming from an intrinsic uh, pressure to prove your distinction. Um, and the other thing is like that actually it, it's fun, you know, like it feels good to to, I don't know, like to be creative in that way, to sort of uh, play around with, uh, I mean, I, I, I said the worst things about Instagram for the longest time, but then like when I realized that I could go to like a pretty boring uh, outing and then take a picture and then put on this like really sweet, uh, like what's like, early bird or something like that. Like you can put some, some sort of, uh, some sort of tone on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, filter. And, and it, and suddenly like an experience that, that was totally weird and, uh, you didn't really talk to anyone and like no one, no one was having any fun whatsoever. It was like the best time of your life because like this photo is, is telling the entire story, you know? And, um, I, went, I went to a show like a couple weeks ago in Richmond and the entire front row um, of like of fans like had their smartphones out with like with Instagram up and rather than like experiencing the show they're like taking these pictures and then like playing around with the uh, with the filter and it's like it's fun to tell stories. Like, it really is fun to tell stories about your life and to be creative in that way. But it's also so tied to validation that, that we, can't, um, we can't detach ourselves from it. Um, so, I don't know. Sally Coslow um, will say all these things about us being a bunch of loafers, but at the same time, this sort of self-curating process is like, it's really hard work. And that's why people are, I mean, they're, they're waking up, you know, and, and not getting out of bed and immediately starting to work on this identity that they have to craft online. Um, because if you miss a beat, if you miss something on Facebook, then that's, it's sort of like a crack in, in one of your defenses. Um, so, again, The Atlantic says this, um, and I think this is on your, on your sheet. Um, our omnipresent new technologies lure us toward increasingly superficial connections 
at exactly the same moment that they make avoiding the mess of human interaction easy. The beauty of Facebook, the source of its power, is that it enables us to be social while sparing us the embarrassing reality of society. The accidental revelations we make at parties, the awkward pauses, the farting and the spilled drinks, and the general gaucherie of face-to-face contact. Instead, we have the lovely smoothness of a seemingly social machine. Everything's so simple. Status updates, pictures, your wall. And yet, self-presentation on Facebook is continuous, intensely mediated, and possessed of a phony nonchalance that eliminates even the potential for spontaneity. Look how casually I threw up these three photos from the party at which I took 300 photos. (laughs) Curating the exhibition of the self has become a 24-7 occupation. Perhaps not surprisingly then, the Australian study who uses Facebook found a significant correlation between Facebook use and narcissism. Facebook users have higher levels of total narcissism, exhibitionism, and leadership than Facebook non-users. In fact, it could be argued that Facebook specifically gratifies the narcissistic individual's need to engage in self-promoting and superficial behavior. Um, So, it is hard work. I mean, it's not just that um, you have the opportunity to show like your family and friends, these pictures from this party you went to, but you, you, you suddenly feel the need to create a photo that, that shows you that this experience was the perfect experience. And look how well I'm doing. You know, like look at how fun my life is here um, that you're not getting to see so much. Um, so obviously there's anxiety which comes from that because... Um, there's this need to, um, to tell a story about yourself that, that isn't necessarily true. And so this is kind of where the validation aspect comes into play, that not only are we uh, consumed with all these choices, but we also have to make uh, choices that can be validated by, um, by the people that we deem uh, validators. So from here, um, there's this essay by a guy named uh, Walker Percy, Love in the Ruins. Um, and uh, he does a really good job of talking about how like, the modern man has become someone who doesn't exist in, in freedom, in the freedom to be a creature, but <clears throat> instead is, um, has, has given off that freedom to whoever uh, he is deemed worthy to validate him. So... He tells a story um, that I'm going to pick up about halfway through about this couple that goes to Mexico. And um, the way he describes it is they've, they've, before Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, uh, they've gone to Mexico to find it, you know, some remote place in Mexico that no one in the Midwest has ever seen. Um, and something that they can go back to their friends and tell them, like, we've you've got to see this, like this is so authentic. He's, he's on the search for authenticity. Um, and so in, in the first step, they go to this place um, that they read about being really remote and it's called like Guanayato or something. 
and they get to Guanajuato, and there's like six other families from the Midwest who read that same piece, <laughs> saying like, this is a remote place. And so immediately, as soon as they see that, that, that fam, those other families are there, uh, their experience is invalidated. Like, they, they no longer can enjoy the moment because they're, no, they're not freed up by being in Mexico or being at Guanajuato. They're constrained by these people who say uh, whether or not this is a genuine experience. So something happens on the way back, though, and they get lost. And this is, this is I mean, this is so in line with what Sitman was talking about, that sometimes the only way to actually find hope is to get completely lost. Um, here we go. So they get to this fork in the road. They take the wrong fork, and next next thing that happens is they've wound up in this unbelievable village that no one knows about and no one has uh, ever heard of. Uh, like European Western eyes have never set foot, but apparently there's this amazing corn festival going on, and they are experiencing for the first time something that no one else knows about. The couple knows at once that this is it. They are entranced. They spend several days in the village, observing the Indians and being themselves observed with friendly curiosity. Now may we not say that the sightseers have at last come face to face with an authentic sight, a sight which is charming, quaint, picturesque, unspoiled, and that they see the sight and come away rewarded. Possibly this may occur. Yet it is more likely that what happens is a far cry indeed from an immediate encounter with being, that the experience, while masquerading as such, is in truth a rather desperate impersonation. I use the word desperate advisedly to signify an actual loss of hope. The clue to the spuriousness of their enjoyment of the village and the festival is a certain restiveness in the sightseers themselves. It is given expression by their repeated exclamations that this is too good to be true, and by their anxiety that it may not prove to be so perfect. And finally, by their downright relief at leaving the valley and having the experience in the bag, so to speak, that is safely embalmed in memory and movie film. What is the source of their anxiety during the visit? Does it not mean that the couple are looking at, a, at the place with a certain standard of performance in mind? Are they like Faber, who gazed at the world about him with wonder, letting it be what it is, or are they not like the over-anxious mother who sees her child as one performing, now doing badly, now doing well? The village is their child, and their love for it is an anxious love because they're afraid that at any moment it might fail them. <clears throat> okay, we have another clue in their subsequent remark to an ethnologist friend. So they have this ethnologist friend, um, and someone who they have uh, imbued with, like, the power to validate their experience. So, um, how we wished you had been there with us. What a perfect goldmine of folkways. Every minute we would say to each other, if only you were here, you must return with us. This surely testifies to the generosity of spirit, a willingness to share their experience with others, not at all like their feelings toward their fellow uh, Iowans on the plaza at Guanajuato, where they saw the other Midwesterners. 
I'm afraid this is not the case at all. It is true that they longed for their ethnologist friend, but it was for, their, for an entirely different reason. They wanted him not to share their experience, but to certify their experience as genuine. This is it, and now we are really living, do not necessarily refer to the sovereign encounter of the person with the sight that enlivens the mind and gladdens the heart. The present experience is always measured by a prototype, the it of their dreams. Now I am really living means that now I am fulfilling the role of sightseer and the sight is living up to the prototype of sights. This quaint and picturesque village is measured by a platonic ideal of the quaint and the picturesque. So um, I, you basically get the point that, that experiences aren't experiences anymore. They've, they've been shipped off for, for whoever we have deemed um, the authority to validate them. And, I mean, it's the same with Facebook. Like, we feel the pressure to, um, to create an identity and not just, not just in the freedom that this is, this was my night, this was my weekend. I put these photos up because, like, I want to share them with my friends. But I put them up because I want my friends to say whether or not that was, like, a valid experience. Um, and what's funny about that is that in the pursuit of authenticity, in the pursuit of going after... Um, like the authentic experience, you never have one. So in the actual pursuit of it, it can't really happen. Um, and so the anxiety that comes for a lot of us in our 20s, and it's not just about Facebook, it's about our life experiences. We need to, we need to have the validation that like what we're choosing to do with our lives is the right thing to do. And if we're not getting that validation, um, we're anxious because we're thinking, then what is it? What should I be doing? Um, so, um, this is the same with relationships. And a, an eerie example that I thought of was um, I was looking at Facebook the other weekend, and there was like a couple that had just gotten engaged. And um, the feeling I got was that their, like their entire, um, their feed, you know, of, of engagement photos was like a narrative with which like needed validation from all of their friends who either had been a part of the engagement party or not. And it, it does feel that way in our generation that at times, like, the engagement party isn't what matters. What matters is like getting those up on Facebook so that then they're validated by our friends and it can be seen as like a proper engagement. Um, so anyway, I think what happens um, is that um, when you when you have when you have this relationship with people where there is only um, a validator and a validated, um, <clears throat> there's, there's really no actual connection in like the weakness of who you both are. And so um, what happens then is 
just like on Facebook, how you can like things very easily. Um, you have relationships that really have no cost. Like, relationships are, are, are costless, in a sense. Um, so, uh, what happens is that things don't ever really get messy because in, in, the, in the framework that our social media has constructed, things are allowed to stay tidy and the messiness of those relationships never really fall through. Because as soon as they get messy, you just move on to the next one. Um, and I don't know, saying a relationship has a cost and that you have to give some and get some and that sort of thing is, is not really the language of Mockingbird. But it is in a way, because as we're talking about like the forgiveness of sins, like there is a cost that needs to be paid. And in the same way with relationships, like if, if there is no time to pay for the penalty of people's um, you know, frustrating anxieties or fights or bickering or, you know, uh, really annoying tendencies. If you don't see those things and bear the cost of those things, then it's, it never really was a relationship. Um, so I want to read one more thing and then um, I, I'd, I'd love to talk. This is from <clears throat> Jonathan Franzen who wrote Freedom and um, he, he wrote a piece on... Uh, the, the like culture in Facebook and, and how uh, we've sort of shipped off uh, love for the like, and he's, he's urging people to instead go back to loving again. So here's what he says. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. Sooner or later, for example, you're going to find yourself in a hideous, screaming fight, and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all, things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in control, funny, likable person. Something realer than likability has come out in you, and suddenly you're having an actual life. So it's interesting that like in the moment when, when you come out is not the likable part, but the part that is completely hideous and that you wish didn't come out. Uh, suddenly there's a real choice to be made in this moment. Not a fake consumer choice between a Blackberry or an iPhone, but a question. Do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? There's no such thing as a person whose real self you like every particle of. There's no such, um, this is why a world of liking is ultimately a lie. But there is such a thing as a person whose real self you love every particle of. And this is why love is such an existential threat to the techno-consumerist order. It exposes the lie. This is not to say that love is only about fighting. Love is about bottomless empathy, born out of the heart's revelation that another person is every bit as real as you are. And this is why love, as I understand it, is always specific. Trying to love all of humanity may be a worthy endeavor, but in a funny way, it keeps the focus on the self, on the self's own moral and spiritual well-being. Whereas a love for a specific person 
um, and to identify with his or her struggles and joys as if they were your own means you surrender some of yourself. The big risk here, of course, is rejection. We can all handle being disliked now and then because there's such an infinitely big pool of potential likers. But to expose your whole self, not just the likable surface, and to have it rejected can be catastrophically painful. The prospect of pain generally, the pain of loss, of breakup, of death, is what makes it so tempting to avoid love and stay safely in the world of liking. Um, so, here you come to the, the crux of sort of mockingbird <clears throat> theology, I guess. And just real quick, I want to talk about this term that we use a lot, imputation. And uh, basically, imputation is, theologically speaking, like what God... Uh, what God in Christ has done for man, naming him something that in nature he is not, which is righteous. So we, we are named righteous, not because we are righteous, but because, but because of Christ we are given the name righteous. Now, you could argue that imputation happens on Facebook, that we self-impute, like we have this closed-circuit system of imputation, that we... Uh, we know our insecurities. We know that, like, um, when we when we start talking to, to people, we end up talking too much, and we really don't want to uh, show that on our profile. So we craft this person. We almost impute upon ourselves an image of ourselves that we like to see, and that's the hope. It's like, okay, that's me, you know, that's me, and I'm imputing it to myself. So maybe it's true now, you know. If I just put it out there so everybody sees it, I will become that. And God's imputation does that. God, God imputes on us uh, the nature of, of um, righteous people. And, and in a weird way, because we've been named righteous, uh, suddenly we can, we can actually be compassionate and sympathetic people. Um, but in this world of uh, like self-imputation, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's only, it's only like uh, self-propelled, and we need imputation to come from the outside. And then on the flip side, um, you could also say that, well, but Facebook is, is interesting because we can impute on others. You know, like, I can, I can like this, uh, this party that you threw because I went and I didn't actually like it, but I'll, I'll tell you that I like it and make it public, and it'll impute on you some, some level of cool that you didn't have before. And the reason that doesn't work either is because... I'm really just affirming the projection of you that's been put out there. So I'm not, I'm not imputing the honest person that, uh, that I wish I could impute on, but I'm imputing on your idea of yourself. And so you'll never actually believe uh, my like because who you're liking isn't you. You know what I mean? So there's, there's this really, like, it, it's a... It's a system that functions on a dishonest representation of ourselves. And because we're not honest with it, um, we can't be fully known and fully loved like Sidney was talking about. Um, but the good news is that um, even in the Bible, we are seen as dishonest people. And, and something I immediately thought of 
uh, was the story of Jesus reinstituting Peter after the three denials. And Peter's Peter's just like us. I mean, he didn't have Facebook, but he totally did, in the sense that like he he crafts a profile and an identity that is totally dishonest, and and Jesus normalizes it, and it's it's like it's made okay, you know. Um, He's told that he's going to deny him, and uh, in total delusion, Peter believes that he would never do something like that. I'm not the type of person that would do something like this. And Jesus says, well, you're going to, but have at it. And so he does, and that dishonesty is actually normalized in a way. Um, And they meet on the beach, and uh, he cooks him breakfast, and he... He tells him that he's going to be the rock of the church. And, and so that's the beauty of God's imputation in a way that it can't happen with social media, uh, which isn't to say that it's irredeemable. It just means that in the midst of it, you, you have to get lost and be exposed um, in some way to be known. So I'll stop there, and um, I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts if we have time. Do we have time? completely frankly like look at this really hideous picture of me like <laughs> you're you're obviously going to delete that photo and um, that's the way it works you know the rules of Facebook and if that person's like leaving their ugly pictures up you're thinking that's either like they're morons or or that they just like there there's some there's well, some so sort of malintent involved you know there's Yeah, it is, totally. Yeah. We're doing so well. Love to your family. Do you want to maybe comment on the role or functionality of Facebook for not 20s, but 40s or 60s? Yeah, I'd love to hear. I mean, like, I know that my mom is more active on Facebook than I am, and I feel pressure from her to be more active on Facebook <laughs> than I feel from my friends. Um, I don't know. I think I think with with 40s through 60s, hopefully, life has intervened enough that like uh, that it's more it's more used for just like catching up with old friends or something like that. But um, no, it's still a measuring stick. Yeah. Yeah, Pearl. So, <clears throat> how would you be diminished, or would you be diminished if you didn't use Facebook? Yeah, yeah. I don't know anything much about it. Right, so, right. I know, yeah. And a lot of people have said, like, I got off it and I'm so thankful that I got off. Like, it was something that was hard to do and now I, I'm so glad I did. And, um, 
Yeah, absolutely, it is. Um, but someone described it in this article, the Atlantic article, that it's it's kind of like what your mom always said: you put in what you it, you get out what you put in. And so, if it is your ultimate source of validation, um, it's almost impossible to leave. Uh, but you'd probably be a lot better off if you did. Um, what would be the role in the church? Uh, you see church's role in this, perhaps the church suggesting we leave the Facebooks outside uh, because I mean, the un unintended consequences of all of this is the repercussions are really fast. Yeah. Yeah. We don't hear, you know, we're sort of, well, we're stuck in this mode where we've got to do it, but I think the church, maybe that needs to say, hey, we don't have to do this. We can meet people one-on-one, -on -one. Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But is that a possibility? Yeah. Like year old? I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, you would then run the risk of, of sounding like a church that was really moralizing. You know, like, guys, I know you use Facebook, but we don't use Facebook. And we prefer if you didn't when you were in the walls, you know. And uh, despite the fact that it would actually be good for the church in a lot of ways, like, um, it's, it's maybe just not realistic, I guess. It's kind of the way the world is. What time is that? I don't want to. 3.30. Okay, I'll let you guys go. Um, I'm around if you want to talk. Thanks again.